everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler recently completed on, on November 13th the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, which occurred in Glasgow, Scotland from October 31st to November 13th. This is the United Nations uh, huge event that has been covered worldwide and whether or not the, the, the international community can effectively respond to climate change, the challenge of the generation, uh, we're going to focus on that topic today, Tyler. It's a great topic and we have a great guest for it. Absolutely. And I've just got to say that uh, as we were here stateside watching the CNN coverage, you know, the big media coverage of uh, COP26, I was missing something. It just felt so sterile. You'd get these camera shots with the big globe, lots of pictures of the big globe, and mm. delegates sitting in this very sterile room. And I needed a vibe check. Yeah, we need I to need get a deeper. real, real vibe check. No, I need some real talk That's about right. what was going on in Glasgow, Scotland. Indeed, it, I would have, I would have loved to go. Uh, but uh, turns out uh, we we have something just about as good. Someone well, who was actually there, covering. COP26. Yes, we do. Joining us from London, England is Nadia Rosli. She is a project director at Internews Malaysia. She hails from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, is on her way back home and stopped in London. Uh, she's joining us after a five-hour train ride from Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, she was attending the uh, COP26 meeting uh, as a along with a group of journalists uh, who were brought to the event to really take a look at this event, cover it from the perspective of the Global South community, the uh, Southern Hemisphere community of the planet. And so uh, a unique perspective as a journalist attending COP26, and I'm really looking forward to her firsthand account of this incredible meeting uh, that occurred just this week. Me too. It's time we, we really got a feel for what's going on there. And we get to meet a fascinating person, Peter. I'm looking forward to it. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Nadia, thank you very much for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast from London, England. I know you've been traveling and are tired and couldn't, we couldn't be more thankful to have an opportunity to speak with you. Thank you very much for your time. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure, actually. Uh, Nadia, we were able to, in preparation for our discussion today, look at some of your interviews that were that you were conducting at COP26. Could you give us a little bit of background? How did you end up being at this incredible conference? Uh, can you share a little bit about your background as a journalist and what brought you to COP26? Yeah, sure. Um, so I came um, to COP26 as part of the Internews Network team. Um, so this year, we have organized um, the Climate Change Media Partnership Program, 
which is something that the Earth Journalism Network um, on the internews and also Standing Media Centre for Peace and Security have done this year. But it's something that um, EGN or the Earth Journalism Network has been doing since 2007, where they bring in fellows from um, Global South, developing countries, you know, what, whatever you call this. Uh, yeah, so journalists from these countries to attend um, COP in person just because um, there isn't a lot of opportunity for, um, you know, journalists from these countries to attend, um, you know, either it's due to financial, um, lack of financial support, um, and just maybe uh, capacity building as well. It is really a great opportunity. Um, so I was there as part of the team, but also I'm a freelance environmental journalist from Malaysia. Um, I write mainly um, on uh, how, you know, the intersection of science with culture and nature. Um, so that's what I've been focus- uh, focusing on for the last few years. So it's kind of a double role. Um, and also back in Malaysia with my project in uh, with Internews, I run a um, three-year program uh, targeted uh, towards citizen journalists. Um, and we also train local journalists, CSOs, um, activists, and researchers uh, in investigative and data journalism yeah so i was kind of um putting on a double um you know yeah a uh, double head there while i was at cop absolutely and i, I just want to before we get to cop 26 because uh, i we we want to hear the whole story and we want to break mm-hmm. it down in detail because i'm sure it's a good one but uh tell us a little bit about you know your reporting in malaysia uh, i'm not super familiar with malaysia tell us about tell us about uh, this country. So Malaysia, we are, um, you know, a Southeast Asian country. Uh, we're uh, the peninsula of Malaysia is we're in between Thailand and Singapore, and then we have, uh, you know, the eastern side of uh, Malaysia, East Malaysia, which is Sabah and Sarawak, uh, on the Borneo side. So uh, we have a population of about thirty million people. Um, so it's not we are um, we're we're quite we're we're pretty small, um, but I guess not too small either. Um, and, you know, a lot of um, countries or how people would view us is like as a middle income country, although we are a developing country as well. Um, you know, we're one of the most uh, considered, you know, mega diverse countries since we have uh, tons of biodiversity, really unique ecosystems here. Um, and I think as an environmental journalist in Malaysia, uh, even though we are a mega diverse country, we still don't do a lot of reporting um, about the environment. I think a lot of news outlets and newsrooms um, usually focus on things like pollution um, and problems, I guess. Uh, so I think that in the sense that environmental news coverage in Malaysia, uh, we still have a long way to go. I am a freelance environmental journalist. I don't know uh, many environmental journalists in this country. I think I can probably yeah count a few of them who are doing this um, or specializing in this beat. Um, and definitely climate journalism as well um, is still something new in this country. I think we're still trying to um, understand the science um, and trying to communicate all that technical kind of stuff to, to laymen here. And I think um, language is also a challenge in terms of communicating all that science you know, from the English reports into Bahasa Malaysia. Um, we also have um, Mandarin speakers. We have people who speak in Tamil and other languages. So uh, we are a multiracial, multi-religious country as well. Yes, I don't know if that was no, uh, that was a great. Good <laughs> that was great and and um, beautiful because if you look, if you just go to the Wikipedia and look at some photographs, just stunning 
uh, mm-hmm. landscape and coastlines. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, what is the, is, is there an environmental cultural, um, connection there in Malaysia that people have with the environment? Be, you know, it's just such a beautiful place. I, I would imagine there would be, but could you talk about that? Yeah, um, definitely. I would say yes. Um, although I think we have to reconnect, um, to that relationship. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, um, you know, I've, I've been pro- uh, producing a, a show, Shadow Puppetry, and also live music um, based on folktales about nature, um, you know, r- local and regional folktales where we have actually launched it this week. Um, it will cool. be on air next month, yeah. Um, so basically, that was our attempt to, I think, to inform the Malaysian public about these very strong linkages we have with, you know, um, our natural landscapes, um, true heritage. So a lot of our folk tales, a lot of the traditional songs, um, you know, they talk about the ocean, they talk about forests, they talk about wildlife, um, and some of our nursery, nursery songs as well, um, you know, make that connection, you know, to wetlands and all these things. But I guess because um, I don't think a lot of parents actually teach their kids anymore kind of these stories. Um, I grew up with some of them. I don't know about children nowadays. So I think we kind of want to reinvent um, or, or retell these stories through, you know, kind of a unique um, approach, which is live music and puppetry um, and get like kids excited again about all these stories that originate from Malaysia and also from this region. And definitely we have a long history of voyaging. Um, you know, people from the Malay archipelago have been sailing all the way to, you know, the Middle East. And, you know, we had traders coming in. So we really have a deep connection with our ocean um, and also our forests. Uh, and we have indigenous communities as well in Malaysia, um, quite small. But, you know, they are the people in the front line and they are the ones who are still fighting for, um, you know, their land, for their forests, for our water catchment areas. So, yeah, it is an interesting kind of um, situation we have right now where we still have a lot of people who depend um, directly on you know the the ecosystems that we have but we also have like a growing middle income um you know people who live in cities and kind of have forgotten that linkage an extraordinary part of the world you, it sounds as though you are a, and have been for some years an environmental advocate and activist in malaysia uh, educated mm-hmm. i understand at the university of glasgow and with your master's degree so a little bit of a homecoming to go to cop 26 mm-hmm. this year uh, an undergraduate degree from the uh, International Islamic University of Malaysia. I'm, I'm curious about uh, th- uh, learning more a little bit about inter uh, uh, about uh, about the Internews Network, uh, a mm-hmm. nonprofit Tyler founded in California in 1982 uh, to promote I like to hear. Inter- international <laughs> journalism support. Uh, the free press and an incredibly important thing. Uh, tell us a little bit about. Uh, about the organization Internews Network and about the 22 journalists who were funded to appear at COP26? Yeah, sure. So um, Internews is a media development nonprofit. I think it's the largest media development nonprofit in the world. Um, You know, we operate in 100 countries and closed states. And, um, you know, we have projects all around the world. Um, So um, it was, uh, you know, it was established in, I think, Arcada, California. But we do have headquarters in London and, um, and in Kenya. And then we have a regional office 
um, in Bangkok as well, um, and in uh, and also we have HQ in Washington. So yeah, we we do projects all over the world. Um, you know, focusing on freedom of expression, um, basically training journalists um, to hold powers accountable to talk about you know rights to information, to talk about um, media literacy, how to counter misinformation. So we we run a host of um, programs. Like mine, for instance, um, my project is called Suara Masyarakat or Community Voices. And its focus is basically to train journalists and local um, citizen journalists basically to write very local stories uh, and then to bring or raise uh, local concerns to authorities and have a feedback loop where we really try to address both supply and demand side of the information landscape. So yeah, we, we definitely have um, you know a, a lot of programs going on. But um, going back to why we were at COP through the Climate Change Media Partnership Program, so um, Earth Journalism Network, which is also under Internews, they've been bringing journalists from developing countries or the global south um, to COP since two thousand seven, and they collaborate with different organizations. And this year, it was with the Stanley Center for um, Peace and Security. So the and I think this year was particularly challenging as well, considering we of the, because of the COVID restrictions um, and the fact that a lot of journalists from these countries couldn't be there in person. Although it's such an important um, conference for journalists to be covering, and definitely we need those diverse voices to be at the conference. And I think they've pulled off like a really immense feat this year. Um, you know, just having fellows from uh, 20, uh, 22 fellows from, I think, 20 countries. Um, yeah, just bringing them together to cover COP. Um, there were like a lot of stories about how difficult some of the fellows, like like even for me, um, you know, I'm fully vaccinated with Oxford, AstraZeneca, but I'm considered not vaccinated by UK standards. So um, mm. some people had to quarantine even though they're fully vaccinated because of the countries they are from. Wow. Um, yeah, so I think even then, like even from the beginning, just even before covering COP, we're already seeing that disparity and those challenges um, wow. that journalists from developing countries are, are facing just to cover COP. And yeah, that, that was really eye-opening as well. Why, uh, uh, Nadia, why was it important and why is it important for journalists from around the world to attend COP26? Um, I think my my first observation would be, and this is my first COP as well, you know, when you enter the media center, I think everyone, everyone can vouch for the fact that, you know, it's dominated by Western journalists, um, most of them Caucasian journalists from really big news outlets like BBC, New York Times, Guardian. Um, but a lot of the issues at the COP you know, it doesn't, I mean, it, it's not only about developed countries and, and what they want. It's about developing countries who are facing the impacts of climate change right now. Um, and the journalists themselves are, are in the front line of that kind of reporting. I mean, there was one journalist from India whose hometown, you know, is being flooded right now. Um, and he has that kind of, he feels he's responsible to, to convey what's happening back home and try to get whatever topics from from COP and somehow link it back to what's happening, um, you know, with his hometown. And then we have uh, journalists from the Philippines. I mean, obviously, they have typhoons every year. They're facing, obviously, the, re the impact of climate change already for many years. 
Um, so I think it's really important to have these journalists over there just because I think they have a very unique perspective and they understand the issues when it comes to what vulnerable nations are facing in climate change. And I think it really humanizes the issues as well. Um, and and when you have like, you know, journalists who are from countries that are not impacted directly, I mean, they can just finish COP and then go back to their homes or their countries who, you know, with stable climates and not have to worry about floods and typhoons and, you know, people migrating and facing health issues. Um, and I think that's really important because I feel the most important story is not at COP, it's what's what happens after and what happens in those countries after COP, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And boy, I certainly agree with uh, that. Um, one of the things that I have noticed this year, at least in our American mainstream journalism, is that really for the first time, um, severe fire events was initially that heat wave actually in the Pacific Northwest was a really key moment because of a very quick attribution that scientists did. And the media picked it up and they really kind of attributed that heat wave to uh, climate change and, and man-made climate change. Um, and, but, but really, with that event aside, um, climate change has been kind of a theoretical concept. And, um, the, and the way that journalists have reported on it has been, you know, about 1.5 degrees or, or 2 degrees and kind of these numbers that, that don't, don't necessarily translate directly to like human experiences. And I'm wondering if that, and of course on Coastal News Today, periodically, Peter, we will run a, a, an outstanding piece of journalism from, uh, I would say, from, or originating from the global south. Obviously, we focus on the American shoreline and so we have our you know, 90% or whatever of our news is, is going to be domestic. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm wondering if you, it, if you would comment on and characterize, um, like the, the tenor of journalism generally, are you, are you guys like making stronger attributions to climate change, um, in, from developing nations because it's more felt like, like, are you at a different level of reporting than, than what we're accustomed to here in the States? Um, I can't speak for the other countries. I mean, my experience is with Malaysia and maybe a bit of um, with Southeast Asia. Um, you know, just, just for context, you know, Malaysia, we are, Malaysians are so fortunate in the sense that we don't have any natural disasters compared to our neighbors like Indonesia and Philippines. And I think there's a sense of complacency as well amongst Malaysians when it comes to climate change because we don't face the climate crisis um, you know, as severely as our neighbors. But when you do speak with Indonesian journalists or Filipino journalists um, and, um, you know, the ones from India as well um, and Bangladesh. So um, we did have a speaker who did mention about um, the non-economic losses and how those other stories that are, you know, being highlighted as well. It's not just about the economy. It's about loss of lives, heritage, um, and yeah, and homes uh, that the journalists are, you know, writing about, um, you know, about indigenous communities just because they do on the ground reporting and they're talking to these communities firsthand. Um, and there was a mentor from India, Joydeep Gupta. Um, he's a court veteran who was part of our Climate Change Media Partnership Program. And he did mention that the level of journalism, uh, you know, in developing countries when it comes to environment is um, on par with you know Western publications or or even even more 
because you know just just based on the the field experience and the kind of challenges that the journalists face in getting the stories and i think there's a personal investment um i feel that they have towards writing the stories because you know they know families who've been impacted who've lost their life um through typhoons or they themselves have been involved in natural disasters so i think that yeah it, it's i think it really humanizes the stories that they do and i think they have a sense of urgency as well when they write these stories hmm. it's important to have the perspective of the global south as that phrase is uh, used to describe the community of journalists and and, and countries and and cultures uh can you talk a little bit about the access that you had at COP26 to the leadership uh, as a journalist? Were you able to attend the sessions that you wanted to attend? Were you able to reach the leadership? Uh, tell us about your experience as a journalist at COP26, if you would, and and for the other fellows from the uh, Climate Change Media Partnership. Well, um, obviously this year with COVID, they have had to, you know, adjust the way, um, you know, media interacts with um, the, the delegates and also how civil society have access to the Blue Zone. For instance, it was very limited. I think they only allowed about 10,000 people in the Blue Zone, uh, which is where a lot of the things are happening. Um, like some of the press conference were um, fully virtual, even though it is in the same space, just because they have a limit or capacity to how many people can be in a room and they had social distancing but it's also um you know people some some journalists were queuing to get into certain venues um because you know um, depending on what they wanted to cover but in terms of access to the people that we want to speak to i think it depends on countries as well like for instance like i was here with another journalist from malaysia who was also brought uh, to COP by the same uh, media partnership program. So we were the only two journalists from Malaysia. And then we did um, manage to get interviews with our uh, Malaysian delegation, the head of the Malaysian delegation, Dr. Zaini Ujang, um, I think before COP. And also our last interview with him was on Sunday, on the 14th in the morning um, through, through Skype. But um, we, we did manage to get him at the event. Um, I don't know whether uh, he he liked this, be you know having cross uh, crossing paths uh, you know with us so many times, but you know, but he he was um, quite accommodating most of the time to speak with us. We did have access to the NGOs, um, the civil society, but I think there was um, a Nigerian journalist who was part of the program who was very frustrated with how she she was saying how the delegation from Nigeria didn't want to speak to her. But she had like better experience speaking to the delegation from Ghana, for instance, but not from her own country. It's almost like they were avoiding her because she's an investigative journalist. So I think different That's journalists not a good had look. different. Yeah, she was very frustrated, and she calling she, you she out, very, Nigeria. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so she and she's also an investigative journalist. Um, but she did say, you know, it's easier to get them at COP than to get them back home. So she was really running around and trying her best to interview everyone. Um, uh, yeah, so so that was really great. Um, and I think other, yeah, I think other um, journalists were also trying to chase some of their delegates. Um, some were a bit more accommodating than others. I, I think it really depends um, on... Yeah, on the country, like for instance, we had a live broadcast and we managed to get a delegate from Bolivia and he mm. was just really nice and, you know, immediately agreed to to come on to our show. 
Um, I don't think every delegate is as you know as um, as willing as he is to to speak about you know things that they've been discussing. So I think that's where a lot of um, kind of side, I would say side events, but how you get them kind of outside certain um, uh, panels or certain press conferences, and you just kind of approach them. Um, and ask your question, not necessarily in a proper press conference room. Yeah, so I think you just have to think on your feet and and just chase people, I guess. We did a lot of chasing around. It's got to be a tremendous challenge to try to cover an event like this, Tyler. 25,000 delegates attended COP26. That's the formal delegation number from Mm -hmm. 200 countries, 120 heads of state, including uh, President Joe Biden, Angela Merkel, uh, French uh, President Emmanuel Macron. I mean, this is the world leadership in Glasgow, Scotland. Twenty-five thousand delegates and hundreds of thousands of other people in attendance. Uh, Nadia, I'd be very interested to know: Did you attend, or were you able to report on the protests that occurred in Glasgow, Scotland, led by Greta Thornburg, the international climate change activist? Uh, more than 100,000 people were reported to be part of this event. Did, mm-hmm. did you witness that event, and what was your impression of that if you were there? So I did um, go for both protests. Um, I attended very briefly on Friday, the Fridays for Future March. That was like the smaller protest. The bigger protest was on Saturday. Um, and I think that was the one that they reported around 100,000 people were on the streets. So I was basically kind of walking together with the protesters and, you know, taking photos, kind of just trying to listen in on, you know, um, some of the conversations and also just, yeah, just trying to understand kind of the atmosphere. Um, It was, I I thought it was really great, um, to be honest, just to be part of that. Um, The thing about Malaysia is we don't really have a protest culture. Um, People don't really protest. So I think it was really interesting to just see how really well organized the whole thing was. Um, for the most part, the police, you know, kind of allowed people to do their own thing. I, I even saw some police who were smiling. One of them even said they've never seen anything like it in Glasgow. Um, wow. You know, this was, yeah, so, but with a smile, I think they were also quite surprised, like, you know, just how many people turned up and just um, how well planned the whole thing was. Um, yeah, you had, you know, people all over, um, you know, who were there. You had, like, some indigenous communities from the Amazon all the way to, I think there were, like, farmers from India who were there as well. Um, and then you had, obviously, like, the bigger groups um, from the UK. Um, and I did not get to see Greta um, at the protest. I think I missed her by a few minutes. But... Yeah, I did see children and their parents as well. There, um, some yeah youth delegates as well. Yeah, it was great. I, I thought it was just like I don't know the the block that I was in was just having a ball. They were like you know playing music and dancing. Um, and and you know you had um I guess yeah you had different types of people there, but it, it was a really interesting experience. And yeah, it sounds familiar. It sounds like the kind of uh, <clears throat> general kind of happy Earth Day celebration kind of protests that we have in yeah. uh, of late in the States. I, I am curious, um, what were, what did people want to see? Uh, what did the protesters want to see out of COP26? Or, or were they protesting the, 
the mere uh, like what what were they wa- what did they want? There? Yeah, what was the agenda? Do you think? Can you summarize? Um, it really depends, like you know who you're speaking to. Like I said, you know they had different groups of people, but I think overall they wanted the same thing, which was they wanted governments to take um, action, to take immediate action. Um, they wanted, you know, people in power to take the issue seriously. Um, they wanted, you know, um, you know fossil fuel. Um, yeah, did they want? They wanted the the whole movement against fossil fuel to take place. They they wanted uh, a lot of things actually. But I think that the main message that I got was that they just wanted the the people in power to know that you know um, citizens do care about this issue. Um, there's a really growing grassroots movement, um, and they made it clear that you know people are representing their communities and making their voices heard, and that it's not something that you know. Um, decision makers and politicians can ignore because there's and the youths are there so it, it was really interesting I think they want people to take climate change seriously and to make sure that they keep to their promise of the 1.5 degrees um, I, I think that was what well that's that's the impression I got yeah and I have to just butt in here and say that the vibe that I was picking off you know at least in my LinkedIn feed <laughs> which is obviously my <laughs> my network but peter we were talking about this before the show was that cop 26 was not the a huge the big landmark climate um event that i certainly was hoping for i i have to say personally honestly i am a little disappointed uh, i was hoping for bolder uh commitments and actions and like maybe some real vision about the future um but it seems like and, and the reason why i bring this up is you were referencing the oil and gas thing uh, and these companies and obviously we know that uh, this would be a major change but one of the things that we hear in the United States uh, is that um, you know this idea of denying the developing world uh, cheap energy through oil and gas is just not possible that if you if you were to go out to let's just say some of these uh, places in the global south and um to ask people, would you rather give up your your power and electricity or whatever that's cheap and have to, you know, and yet clean up the planet? They wouldn't do it. That people would just want the, they want the plastics, they want the power, they want this kind of quote unquote modern way of living. And I'm curious if that's true from your perspective. Um, like, is that is that the way people feel um, generally? Um, I I think there's an agreement by most people that, you know, we need to phase out fossil fuels if we want to really hit that target of 1.5. And I think people understand that needs, you know, like you said, ambitious kind of bold action. Um, And I think civil societies have made it very clear that, you know, there's not enough um, action being taken um, by by those who are supposed to take action. And obviously, there's you know massive um, group of law like the oil lobbies or fossil fuel lobbies at COP as well, um, you know who are pushing for for their own agendas. Um, but well, this is a conversation. Well, it was a question that I also posed to our Malaysian delegate. You know, considering that Malaysia we produce a lot of oil, yeah. um, you know, the majority of our emissions is from oil. You know, if you know our national oil company Petronas, they contribute to massive GDP for, for Malaysians and 
the whole kind of conversation about oh you know we can't really phase out of fossil fuels because then you need to remove the subsidies and then you're going to increase food prices and all that Malaysians are not going to be happy so I think they're still kind of using the excuse to justify why um, we still need oil subsidies but I think I did ask like you know more citizens want greener energy they want you know a transition into cleaner energy and the youth want that the citizens want that they're voting for that as well um, and you mentioned about disappointment I think I do not know anyone who was at COP who was not disappointed mm. with what happened um, personally like for me when I interviewed the national delegation I was I was also not getting the answers I wanted um, there's yeah it, it still feels that you know we don't want to take bold action um, we still want to make businesses happy we we are not listening to what the citizens want at least in Malaysia so um, there isn't a clear kind of framework or direction to to do a lot of these ambitious goals that we have um, I don't know I just feel the template is the same everywhere um, and I really don't know what would it take for for leaders to to really you know go and do the right thing well it, it was the this was the 26th what is called the conference of parties that's why it's called cop 26 uh, it produced the Glasgow climate pact is the agreement that came out of this event and uh, it is the first uh, cop uh, pact or agreement that actually mentioned coal and oil and gas and fossil fuels as contributing factors wow. to climate change. So it gives you a Finally. sense of how much work there is to be done on the international stage to to come to grips with climate change. Uh, Nadia, I would like to ask, in, in your opinion, uh, having spent two weeks in Glasgow with leaders and delegates from all over the planet uh, t- taking on this issue, do you think uh, we are capable, and I think and when I say we, I mean the human community is capable of effectively responding to an issue of this complexity? Are you optimistic about the future? <laughs> that's, that's a lot to unpack, Laura, in that question. Um, I honestly do not feel optimistic. Um, I was just speaking with one of the fellows, and it was interesting that you know, there were a lot of tears at COP, even amongst journalists, um, you know, that I know. Like one of them was saying right after COP ended, she just cried in her hotel that whole night, um, knowing that, you know, we let a lot of people down because she writes about, um, you know, how climate change is impacting people's health and knowing how communities are affected. She just felt like it was such a a massive letdown for for these people who are already impacted by this crisis. Um, yeah, there and there was also a sense of disbelief, I think, and also another journalist I was with kind of described it as being in a circus. Um, the thing is, you know, nothing is legally binding at COP. I mean, this is the UN after all, um, and we were also speaking about the language used in the text, like. You know, until today, like what what does strongly urged or urge or request? You know, all these words that they're using in the text. What what does it mean? Like, who's accountable um, to monitor and track the progress of the the implementation? So so it, it's yeah, it just feels that this was just talk. Um, 
and I did mention, you know, the most important stories are going to be what happens next, not really what happened at COP. And I think that's where journalists have to play their role and make sure all the commitments and pledges that were made by the, their own countries are being fulfilled and being implemented. And I think they need to hold these people accountable to, to the promises they made at COP. But I'm not really optimistic. I mean, if you look at the signs as well, like we're not doing enough. We're not doing it fast enough. Um, and, and yeah, as you said, 200 countries trying to agree on, on a resolution, um, obviously not reaching consensus, um, people blaming this country as the villain or that country as the villain. And I, I think it is a lot more complex what's happening at COP that's not being communicated. Um, yeah, in the media as well. Um, yeah, there's just, just a whole bunch of stuff happening there. It's, it's really complex. But I think my takeaway from just covering my first call was that uh, it's, yeah, it, it, it is a big disappointment. <clears throat> it's so complicated because you have this like geopolitical thing that we have to play with you know in other words these nation states that need to agree but then what we all know about the modern global community is that man we're there's this economic system that kind of overlays it and in many respects i mean i have to say as just a citizen in this country i feel as though um uh, private sector interests corporate interests are have transcended even the united states government's ability to like self-govern with with clear eyes because these 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 corporations have put so much spin into this public arena where we're supposed to like be able to digest these problems but we can't because we're like we're 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 drunk on uh this you know the the interests of these corporations but um so i i i definitely feel that but uh at the same time what you were talking about earlier is just the the reality of what's on the ground locally and connecting those two things seems really hard again because the geopolitical thing is like very theoretical very high level degrees of centigrade of warming i mean that doesn't really connect with a, a fisherman on whose whose who's livelihood depends on his relationship with the environment i mean as a journalist going forward and and holding people to account what's your What's your theory to bridge that gap between these high-level, um, you know, proclamations and what common everyday folks are experiencing? Um, we yes, uh, thanks for that question. So we we did address this through our live broadcast. Um, we had Jonathan Lin, who is the head of communications from the IPCC, um, who kind of delve into that a bit. Um, so the IPCC report, the latest one, actually has like a whole new. Um, section for regional data, and I think that's a start. Um, I think you can localize that um, pretty much into your stories and, and make it, you know, um, whatever now you want to talk about, localize it and talk about your country using that regional data. Um, and I think that's really important to get the science, um, to, to have the science uh, about your, your country, about your region in, in your stories. So that's the, the first step as well. And I think language is also um, an important part in, in making those stories or linking the global to the local kind of policies 
and making it relevant to your readers. Um, I, and I think you need to, I think journalists would need to produce stories um, in more languages, in more local languages as well, so that people actually read about climate change and understand what it is. Um, and, you know, I have written about local fishermen um, and fish stocks and, you know, climate change. And I think those kind of stories have different entry points. I mean, you can talk about a traditional snack that might be wiped out if you, uh, that might not be there anymore if, you know, because climate change is impacting fish stocks, for instance. Culture is a great entry point to talk about those things. Uh, obviously, people relate to um, stories that affect their day-to-day. Um, and yeah, they don't necessarily use the word climate change, but they understand what it means um, to their livelihoods, what it means to um, their health, and also what it means to to you know their, the future of their children. So I think you you have different entry points to do that. And I think it's also trying to link it back to your NDCs as a journalist. Um, you know, go back to what your country has mentioned about their NDCs and keep you know tracking the progress keep monitoring what the the government is doing in terms of achieving the things that they've mentioned in the in the ndcs to what happened at cop um yeah i think those are the things that i'll be doing at least in the next few months um just because i think i've had the access to the national delegates um and we've asked them some tough questions and they've answered a few of them so i think we need to keep questioning them on on what they're doing who are the stakeholders involved? What kind of consultations are taking place, so that we actually, uh, you know, reach all the targets we have mentioned in our NDCs? Yeah. Mm. And, you know, it's such an, I, I com- completely agree that the the focus on the event itself, COP twenty six, is is really not the place to begin uh, this conversation, or at least to end it. Uh, that the implementation and how this is rolled out in the coming years. Uh, is really where the focus for journalists uh, should be. Uh, Can I just butt in real fast? Yeah. And also that it was a big freaking disappointment. Yeah. I mean, we this is something we were was that was not really touched on. I have to say, in in our mainstream media. Now, uh, I have to give credit to uh, the L.A. Times, the New York Times. I think did some thoughtful, certainly some opinion stuff that I saw come through the wire. Um, and I don't read everything, so I'm 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 speaking broadly. Yeah. But um, I don't. We should be. We should feel really disappointed. I think uh, as Americans right now, particularly Peter, we've been covering the decade of the ocean. Uh, there was a mm-hmm. lot of optimism with Biden's uh, presidency that you know finally we have a Trump was anti acknowledging climate change was even a thing we pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Right. We were in retro frickin' grade. Yeah. We had we needed to make up ground here. Yeah. In my humble opinion. Yeah. And there's tremendous, as as we hear from uh, Admiral Gallaudet on the American Blue Economy podcast, there are indeed economic benefits and opportunities to be had for kind of bending uh bending our society toward addressing this this, taking it on yeah and i just i have to say that uh to me the big takeaway of course it's not it's the beginning of the conversation but we are not ready to respond to this right now it was a failure it's 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 hard to say that 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 institutionally this is one of my biggest concerns is uh, i think that we've reached a point where outright denial of climate change implications is is more rare uh, around the world and more rare in the United States in in serious policy discussions. 
but the institutional capacity to handle an issue of this complexity, uh, I don't think has emerged yet. And COP26 is an example. Uh, I think, Nadia, your point, you have 200, more than 100 countries here uh, trying to negotiate, uh, as you said, Tyler, a modification of the world economy uh, where there are tremendous financial interests at stake. Uh, we haven't turned the corner to effectively respond at this point. Uh, so it does come down, Nadia, to this follow-up journalism that, that you're talking about. And I'm curious about uh, the climate change media partnership program that you are a part of. Is there kind of a coordinated effort or uh, for journalists around the world, particularly in the global south, to track this, to, hold, tr to attempt to investigate and hold accountable uh, uh, organizations that have made pledges. Uh, what kind of support network is there in for international journalists uh, in the global south to, to really track climate change uh, implementation at this point? Oh, well, the EG and the Earth Journalism Network, I think they have more than 14,000 members in the, in the network from all over the world. And there are resources for them on the website. And, you know, they... They do trainings all over the world uh, in environmental journalism, um, and it's also regional as well, like the Third Pole Project, you know, uh, thirdpole.net. It's, you know, mainly for South Asia and Southeast Asian journalists, and they kind of make, uh, they produce investigative stories, and then there are um, data journalism projects as well being done. So I think post-COP, the thing about it is that the journalists have always been writing stories about climate change, and climate journalism and the impacts uh, of that, you know, to society and the communities. So that has, you know, that, that has always been happening. And I think now that COP is over, um, or any or another COP has ended, I think those stories will continue to to come in, just because you know, this, this journalists come from really vulnerable communities, um, and these issues will only get worse. So you will get a lot more stories on how climate change is affecting livelihoods of like fishermen in, in the Mekong region, for instance, or how climate change is causing a lot more health um, conditions for people in India. So those stories are already being produced and I'm sure they, they will continue um, publishing those stories. But I think the disappointment and the frustration that I sense from the journalists who've been always writing the stories is that these conversations that they're having back home, it's it's almost like they they feel a bit um, how you call that. I I think the diff, the more kind of um, difficult conversations about how this is a you know historically contributed emissions or how developing countries are kind of facing um, climate what you, this climate crisis differently because of lack of financing. So I think this kind of stories are not being picked up more off by the, the Western media. And I feel like if there's an understanding that the issues they are writing about is relevant as well to the Western audience, I think that would kind of ensure that these conversations are you know, in, in everyone's consciousness. And it's not about developing or developed countries. Um, you know, This is a, a crisis that's affecting everyone. We, we saw that, like you said, with the fires in California, with the floods in Germany, um, with the wildfires as well in Australia. So I feel like we should start talking about climate change, um, you know, in one voice 
and but mm-hmm. still write about it in a way that we sympathize and we understand what other countries are facing and and maybe highlight this journalist more in, in these publications. So I feel like the CCMP, what they've been trying to do is trying to bring the journalists from these countries and their stories. For instance, they had a partnership, uh, sorry, collaboration with the Scotsman while the fellowship was going. So the Scotsman actually produced uh, published stories by these fellows. So at least the Scottish public understand what's happening in other countries because obviously Scotland is still quite stable in terms of its climate. You know, they're not going to be facing any flash floods anytime soon. So this kind of voices and the diversity of voices are really important. And I think what the Scotsman did through his fellow, this collaboration was kind of like the, the first step of, of introducing like the more complex conversations of climate change to like a broader audience. I like that. Uh, it's the general notion, Tyler, I think that what appeals to me about that approach, Nadia, is we are all victims of this phenomenon, this change in the climate that that the human community has produced over the last you know couple hundred years of industrialization of the planet. Uh, the implications are worldwide. Uh, they affect both the northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere countries. The notion that we are all affected and that we all need to understand that uh, is maybe the beginning to bringing together the kind of uh, consensus in the world community to try to tackle a problem of this magnitude. Um, It's not just what's happening in the Indo-Pacific region and the islands that are threatened by sea level rise. It's also, as you say, fires in California, the tremendous floods that were in Germany, uh, the shift in fisheries around the world. I mean, this is a global problem. Uh, Understanding that we are all in this boat together that we are all victims of these of this phenomenon I think is a is a a sensible way to begin and I I hope that uh, I hope that in your work moving forward uh, you're able to uh, to effectively bring these kinds of issues into the consciousness of more people Um, I would like to ask you as a personal matter Nadia if You know, being disappointed, there's so much at stake here. Uh, The level of consciousness about the issue is is significant. Uh, To hear that folks are so disappointed, distraught even, uh, is not a surprise to me. Um, What is it that keeps you motivated to do the work that you're doing in light of the the conditions that you're describing? Um, You know, on... On the other hand, like I did mention, you know, there were a lot of tears involved. Um, and there were, yeah, at COP. But, you know, just being with these fellows um, was, I think, a really um, transformative, transformative moment for me just because just seeing all of them really working hard on their stories and trying to tell it, you know, to their audiences back home, like, you know, whether it's, you know, the Colombian journalist, Monica, who was uh, focusing more on gender and climate justice, or you have Alfreda, the Nigerian journalist, who was, you know, writing about how um, climate change is linked back to, you know, businesses um, back home and, you know, kind of like the corruption and transparency issues as well. I, I feel like it was very motivating um, and very inspiring as well, because I feel like you know, we still have journalists who, who are trying to bring the stories home and trying to hold, you know, the, the powers accountable. And I think that's very powerful in the sense that I, I feel like they, they have really, 
made me feel that you know I have a lot more to do with with the work that I'm doing. Um, so that yeah, that just definitely being around them really was inspiring, and I think what will keep me going, um, you know, with, with my work is I feel that there's there's so many layers to this conversation about climate change, and I think we need to address the the more complex issues. Um, it's not black and white. Um, we need to talk about businesses. We need to talk about you know regulators. We need to talk about civil society. And I think we need to get everyone to listen to each to each other and put forward different perspectives on the issue and come up with solutions. Because I feel like we we don't talk about solutions enough. And I think we need to talk about solutions that work for our countries. Um, yeah, taking stock, you know, um, with with what happened at COP, I really feel we need to talk about local solutions and how our country and our stakeholders in the country will be responsible to bring those solutions forward. Yeah, and I, I just have to say, because I have to, you know, Peter, I, I think I say it every show, I'm a glass half full guy. And uh, I, the awesome potential of uh, what this problem is, I think needs to be put on the table as well, which is to say that... Um, I mean, this is a big, bold statement, but in the history of mankind, uh, we have struggled to organize ourselves and uh, we have warred on each other and fought over resources, finite resources, etc., over gold and silly shit. And this really is a an opportunity to change the way that we think about our species. Uh, if, in fact, we have to. We have to. It it's is. Bold. It is the. It is. It is the root of the change that has to exist. And and in, interestingly, when I look at COP twenty six, a conference of what are they, Peter? The conference of parties. Yes. Um, you know, organized by the UN, right? Yes. The UN, which is which came out of World War Two. Yeah. The last major global. Uh, war. That was our attempt to make sure that that didn't happen again. I don't know if it's going to work, but uh, what we're doing is we're taking a system that was designed to prevent World War III, basically, and we're asking it to solve climate change. And I don't know. I mean, it's the instrument. It's the instrument we have. Yeah. It's a tool we have in our, in our, we might need to invent a new tool. That's kind of what humans do, right? Yeah, maybe we it's do. It's kind of a characteristic yeah, of our species. Yeah. And as I say, I think the challenge is institutional. Um, but what it, what, it, what a pleasure to have a firsthand account of uh, COP26 from a journalist uh, uh, of Nadia's caliber. Uh, Nadia, thank you so much for, for sharing your insights with our listeners. Uh, if there are folks interested in following your work and we would like to post... Uh, some links in the show description. Uh, how can folks follow your work? Um, well, as for a start, you can go to the Internews website. So that is um, internews.org. And then you can just look um, at the country portfolios and you'll find the Malaysian projects there if you want to know more about what we're doing. Um, I should have a, a better website for myself or <laughs> a landing page, but unfortunately I don't. Um, I am on Instagram though, um, so you can find me at Pikabunadia, which that's my handle. Um, I kind of post my, my new projects there, um, which is the upcoming uh, live music and puppetry production based on local folktales about the environment. 
So you can get tickets um, by going to, to that page as well. Yep. Um, yeah, but I think if anyone wants to keep in touch, I'm on Twitter. Um, my handle is at uh, Dizzy, D-I-Z-Z-Y, Amoeba, A-M-O-E-B-A. So that's my handle on Twitter. So if you want to get in touch, just yeah, just get in touch um, with me on Twitter as well. Love it. Uh, well, we'd love to give you final, uh, the, the last word on this show. Can you, uh, any final thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Mm, well, uh, I feel like, yes, I, I think for, for people who are trying to follow this conversation on climate change, um, would be really good if we read different sources, different stories from different parts of the world and kind of shape our opinion on, on that rather than focusing you know on one perspective and I think let's talk about solutions a lot more because I think the time I mean we don't have time so I think we really need to start mobilizing action if we want to change anything and I think we need to have meaningful conversations about what practical and feasible solutions are for our communities and for our countries. Joining us from London, England, it is Nadia Rosley. She is a project director at Internews Malaysia, a journalist who uh, was covering the COP26 conference in Glasgow, Scotland, from October 20, uh, October 31st to no, uh, November 13th. And on her way back to Malaysia, uh, Nadia, thank you so much for your I- insights into this incredible event. And we look forward to following your work uh, in the future. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much.